This is Tom Capone with StoryCorps, and I'm here with Ray Kerr. Ray, how are you? Good. We are at the Oceanside Library. It's January 16th, 2019, and once again, the Oceanside Library has been very gracious in allowing us to tape these interviews for StoryCorps. Before we begin our conversation, I would like to just remind our listeners that the StoryCorps mission is to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. So having said that, Ray, thank you for agreeing to be a part of this interview or this conversation. Yes, thank you. So Ray, tell me or tell our listeners, how is it that you found out about uh, StoryCorps and the opportunity to share your story? I was at a concert at the Oceanside Library and I was speaking with the uh, assistant director, Tony, and we were chatting and he happened to mention uh, before the show started that uh, this project was going on. So I went online when I got home and took a look and I registered. I figured, uh, you know, it would be something to be interesting to do, something different that I, I have stories in my life to share and I think uh, it's, a, it's a nice opportunity. Well, I thank you for taking advantage of that. And uh, briefly, before we began uh, our conversation and taping, what is going to become the StoryCorps conversation that is sent to the Library of Congress, you shared with me that you have had a, a colorful life and that you do have sh stories to share. So I'm looking forward to uh, having you share some of those stories with us. But let's begin at the beginning. Where did, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, my father was a, uh, in the Navy. So I was born at the Naval Hospital, Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, I believe it was about a year later, or within the year, um, the family moved to Long Beach, New York, where my grandparents lived and had a house. Uh, my uh, childhood was, of course, Long Beach, uh, being at the beach as a, as a young kid with the family, and then eventually just going out on my own early in the morning and spending the whole entire day on the beach with my friends. Um, in the uh, years that uh, you know followed, um, actually my brother Michael was born before me, and my brother Richie was born after me. So I was the middle guy. So you're one of three sons. One of three sons, okay. yes. And um, my father was still in the Navy, and then he was working for my grandfather. And uh, the family basically uh, was out of Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, Bay Ridge and Flatbush. Mm -hmm. So uh, we spent a lot of time <laughs> in Brooklyn on Sundays, especially. There was a you know going to church and uh, after church to Grandma's house, and we climbed I think it was three, four, or five flights, uh, mm -hmm. like out of a movie. Mm -hmm. And um, my grandmother was cooking, just cooking from the minute you walked in. Every Sunday. Every Sunday, church and then to Brooklyn. That's a, uh, it's an important ritual to have as a family and a tradition. Yes. One that's not unfamiliar with uh, the Capone family. We had a very similar tradition as well. Uh, Sunday morning notches at grandma's at Norties. Norties, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, my grandmother, yeah, it was grandma, you uh -huh. know. And I was, the, I was the one out of all of them that I would spend time next to her at the stove. Mm -hmm. And there was like two reasons I did it. One, she always let me taste everything she was making. Uh, and one, I, uh, one, two, is basically I learned how to cook. So uh, 
The thing, the only problem was, is that I would uh, I would taste everything: the meatballs and the sausage and the sauce and dip the bread and all those things. And uh, when it came to dinner, I couldn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> I was so full, and my grandfather used to get so angry at me because she thought I didn't like her food. <laughs> but I remember that thought, and that that's it was such a long time ago. So, what was the one? recipe or one meal that you remember that your grandmother made for you that stands out above all others? Probably her sauce. Mm -hmm. No, and she used to use the pinoli nuts, which they don't do too Uh much, I don't think, anymore. But uh, it was basically the sauce and and stirring. And so when she got busy making other things, I was the one by the stove stirring and stirring. We stir it for hours, you know. So that was probably the big thing was the sauce. But when Sunday came, I mean, it was it was crazy. You, we always thought, you know, we're just going to go visit and hang out and have a good time. And uh, people started showing up. My uncles lived downstairs uh, in an apartment uh, above their hardware store. They had a hard to, hardware store in Brooklyn. So they would start to come up, my Uncle Vic, my Uncle Jess, and all of a sudden, more and more relatives showed up. And the, the apartment was very tiny at that time. I'd say an average of 25, 30 people every, every single The apartment th- could accommodate that many people. Because my grandmother set up everywhere. The children ate in the living room. We grabbed a plate and we sat on the floor. The adults ate in the dining room. And uh, it was constant. It was it was never ending. And if anybody came by to visit to say hello, they were eating pasta and meatballs and sausage and, and the bread and the bread. <laughs> and God forbid you ran out of bread. <laughs> that was that was never going to work. So I yeah. So those days in Brooklyn were like amazing. So Ray, I, your, your last name is Kerr. Right. But it sounds that you grew up in a household that is Italian. Right. My Italian. mother. My mother's last name was Arbasio. My father's is Kerr, and he came from the Middle West. Mm-hmm. So he came out of he came from Iowa. So to him, this this whole this whole tradition and this whole family, it was like being in outer space. <laughs> <laughs> he never grew up like that. Mm-hmm. Very quiet family. We actually got to visit out in Iowa, um, and meet his uh, you know meet, met my aunt and met his uh, his father and my grandfather. Uh, so was, I was weird. I mean, people can sit in a room for a long period of time and not say anything or say very little. So it was different. The other thing that was wild when, we, when we were, I was a kid, um, and this was how I got introduced to the music business, is that every relative of my mother's was a performer. My grandmother was a singer. My mother was a singer. My aunt sang opera. She actually got to sing in Carnegie Hall. And my Aunt Angie, who's still alive, she's 97 and lives in California, she was the piano player. So she would sit at that piano. There was a piano in the apartment? Piano in the apartment that hadn't been tuned. <laughs> I don't think it was ever tuned, but she could play around it. And it probably didn't matter. It didn't matter. So they would sing. And the thing was, is when you're young and you want to break through to that, you don't get the opportunity because they're singing. And they could sing harmonies and duos and trios, and they sang so many things that it was unbelievable. So between the Italian food and the singing and 
you know, I had an aunt and uncle, and uh, they were dancers. So they would dance around this little apartment, and everybody was squeezed in. And the tradition usually was is that you would eat, and they drink, and they sing, and they dance, and then they would have dessert, and then two, three, four hours later, they go right back to the leftovers that were there. And grandma and my aunts, they were making meatball sandwiches. 11 o'clock at night, you'd have a meatball sandwich. That sounds like our Christmas Eve celebrations, where you'd eat and eat, take a break, and then go back again. But this was, this was every Sunday? Every Sunday. Every single Sunday. And we never missed a Sunday. And of course, when you're a young kid, I mean, it's just, it's, it's too much because you're like, you're like part of it, but you're not part of it. So how old were you when, when this was taking place? That I can remember, I, I would say, you know, when I was, I can remember when I was five years old, six years old, you know, I can remember every single Sunday, you know. And, and what was the age difference between you and your brothers? Where were you? Uh, I'm, I was... Uh, in the family, uh, I was the middle guy, so uh, my older brother is like three years older than me, mm -hmm. and my younger brother was close to five years younger than me, mm -hmm. and uh, he passed away a while, long time ago, oh, but uh, yeah, uh, so it was, uh, it was tough. So when we were growing up, there was always hassles in the house. We lived in a very small house at the time. It was called a bungalow, and then it was uh, made larger mm -hmm. and whatever. So our constant thing with my brothers was fighting, uh, physical fighting. I mean, you know, we broke the hallway wall, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times, and we used to try to hide it from my father. And um, Unsuccessfully? Unsuccessfully. He would come home and he wised a dresser in the middle of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the hall. A creative way of trying to cover up your... Well, we told him we were going to paint one of the bedrooms. <laughs> we, said, we said, we're just going to paint. So after the second time <laughs> of doing it, so we would fix, and my, my older brother was very handy, so we'd get the sheetrock and fix it and paint it. But he knew, he always knew that <laughs> we were... We were out of control. It was crazy. Well, Ray, there, there are two things that I'm uh, taking away from what you've shared so far, one of which is that by standing there next to your grandmother, you learned a lot about cooking and about her recipes. Did that, is that something that stayed with you? Did you do the cooking for you, for yourself, for your family? I mean, is that something that remained with you? That remained with me. It still remains with me. But, mm -hmm. but today is different for, for, for a different reason. But when I was growing up, uh, yeah, I would try. I would. I'd be the one. Or she tell me, you know, add the oregano and add the basil and uh, a little more olive oil, and always about the flame and the you know. So I learned. So when I got maybe even ten, twelve years old in my house, I would try to cook or cook with my mother. My mother was a pretty good cook. But I tried to do my grandmother's recipes and my grandmother's way of cooking. So how, I'm going to ask a question, and I know that you'll uh, tell me honestly and openly, how close were you able to replicate her recipe? Not at all. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. I never nobody got... Can, nobody can come close to no, a grandma's recipes. Nobody to grandma, no. Yeah. I, never, I never got close. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tried, and I saw what she was doing, and... And it wasn't like we sat and wrote a recipe, but you know, she from from scratch with the tomatoes mean. and you know whatever to make the sauce, 
And it wasn't just soy she made. I mean, she made tons of other things, and mm -hmm. roasted chickens and roast beef and tons of things. But yes, yeah, so in my lifetime, I never caught it. I never, especially the sauce, <laughs> I never caught it. But it, it but helped you to be resourceful and, and helped to uh, yeah. help you. Yeah, and then I developed my own style. So by the time I was a teenager, I was the one cooking in my house. And then when I, you know, left my house and whatever, wherever I was, you know, uh, wherever I lived, I was cooking and, and people liked the food. And it got to be, it, it got to be expected <laughs> that if Ray was coming over. Uh, he was taking over. He was taking <laughs> over. And for some reason, I always did. I always took over. They would tell me, uh, do what you want and give me whatever they what had. What a compliment, though, to you. Yes, yes. But then, it, then when I got married, it got, it got crazy mm -hmm. because they would wait. The rel my, my ex-wife's relatives would wait mm -hmm. at, at our house till I would cook. <laughs> Well, and then I was then we I cooked a lot of fish too, so I know all the recipes that I came up with. Mm -hmm. So I would cook for them because we lived, you know, live by the water. Right. You have seafood places, and, and I would make seafood and make dishes that would last hours of eating. You know. So I asked you before what what recipe of your grandmother's really stood out among the others, but of everything that you have cooked, and of all of the dishes that you've prepared, which is the one that is most well-received by your family and friends? You know, I'm gonna say there are a lot of them, and it depends. I, I, make, uh, I, I make a chicken dish, which is, is uh, roasted in the oven, and it's made with uh, sauteed mushrooms and mozzarella, and baked in the oven, uh, and uh, that one goes over great. All the seafood dishes go mm -hmm. over good. Mm -hmm. I'm able to do a clam chowder, white clam chowder, red clam chowder. I can do lobster bisque. I can. <laughs> from written recipes or just? Just from what I created. Just from what my you own. created. And I was able, I, when I was 17, 18, I worked in two restaurants. Mm -hmm. I. I uh, actually more than once in I, Long Beach or in Long Beach I worked in a, in a place that was called uh, Bel Air mm -hmm. and I was actually there as a driver and I met the guy Vito who's passed away um, uh, he couldn't speak English and he was, a, he was a great cook but he was cooking he was answering the phone and he was delivering so the first time I met him is I was with my friend Vic and we went there to have a pizza or a hero or something. And he says, I'll be right back. And he grabbed all this food that he made and he said, uh, I'll be right back and he just answered the phone. Now he didn't know us, we could have just cleaned the joint out, but we, we eventually were hired, <laughs> In, like the next day. He said, come back, <laughs> couldn't speak English. So, so yeah, so I learned from the restaurants. And, and, th and there I learned probably more technique mm -hmm. because, you know, when they're making things for a restaurant, and it wasn't like a big, you know, fancy restaurant, but it was right off the beach. Mm -hmm. So it drew a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot from, from Vito and working in the restaurants. So the other thing that I, I took from uh, what you shared earlier in our conversation was that music was a big part of growing up. And, and that had a uh, big impact on your life? Big, huge. So, how so? I always wanted to be a singer, you know? I, and to this day, I still sing. I still do shows. Uh, 
I sang with an a cappella group for 12 years. I did... Uh, what, was that uh, how you earned your livelihood as a singer or...? Well, actually what happened was I was... Uh, and you're an educator. <laughs> I was terrible in high school. So they, they literally one day, I was a senior, they said you have one more course you have to take um, and you have to leave, <laughs> you're done, you're finished. So I couldn't graduate with my class or whatever, but I was six, you know, 16, 17, mm -hmm. and I was into the music when I was younger. By the time I was 16, 17, I got into a band. So the deal was is that when I got out of school, I had no education, I had nowhere to go, I had no direction, and I was like, well, what's, what's the thing can I do? So I, I, I put a band together. Now in Long Beach, Atlantic Beach, and those areas, and especially today, mm -hmm. um, the um, clubs, bars, in those days it was bars, uh, hired entertainment. So I was like, 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 like my light bulb went off and went, oh, I'm going to do this. This is it. So I did it for six and a half years, and we built up to doing five or six gigs a week. And then I got... With the same group of guys? No, 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 it never, it never lasts. Mm -hmm. You know, guys have temperaments and mm -hmm. personalities, and you get along great one day, and then two years later... They don't show up, or you don't show up. That's uh, yeah, constantly changing, guys. What, what year are we talking about, approximately? 60, uh, let's see, 66 mm -hmm. till around 73. Okay, in Long Beach? In Long Beach. But you didn't just perform in Long Beach? Or no, we performed everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate also because of the music business. I was able to get, uh, and it wasn't, pay, it wasn't a paying job, but I worked at the Fillmore East in the village. A uh, friend of mine, uh, Mark Rubenstein, uh, followed Joshua White and uh, a bunch of other people doing the lights, uh, the light shows, uh -huh. with liquids and overhead projectors and all that stuff. So I was in the film world all the time with uh, you know, Bill Graham and I went all those people and all the bands. That's incredible. Yeah, I was there backstage all the time. Uh, Santana came to town. I bet there are stories from... Yes. That experience that you could share also. That, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So at the same time, we pretty much all had bands and stuff. Mm -hmm. And everybody was looking for work. And, you know, especially in those days, they weren't really paying a lot of people. But, yeah, the film was always a big thing, and I was around music all the time. And, and you were still living at home at the time? Yeah, I was still living at home. And Long Beach was a, was a very unique place because anybody that wanted to put a band together, put a band together and did it in a garage or basement. So I was a basement guy. Mm -hmm. Problem with my basement is it had low ceilings. Now I'm like five foot seven. And I banged my head on the beams <laughs> every time we used to go downstairs. So we rehearsed in the basement. A friend of mine's had garages and Saturday was the day you got in your car and you went to everybody's house and see what they're doing and so forth. So there was this big conglomeration of bands and they were, they were good. Mm -hmm. I thought we were good because we were working and we were doing and I loved being on stage all the time. Now you, you were the singer or did you play an instrument also? Or? Well, I started out with music. I started out in, uh, in the, I went to Catholic school in Long Beach for eight years. Mm -hmm. And I was part of the band there, and I wasn't really good at it. I was, it was trumpet and French horn, and 
I really didn't have the the heart for it because I wanted to be a singer, so it was singing. When I got older, the singing became a big part of it with the bands. But I never did chorus and I never did, uh, you know, a band concert or anything like that when I was in school. But uh, singing was the thing. And then I learned how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. a, a friend of mine, Roger Chimay, sh showed me three chords, 1966, uh, on a Stella $15 guitar. And I'm still in touch with the guy after all these years. It's amazing. That he, is amazing. He lives out in Reno, Nevada. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he taught me three chords, and then I started playing with him and other guys who were better than me playing guitar. So most of the bands that I played with, I played guitar, and I sang. And, and you were doing cover songs, or are you any original material? Yeah, we we did we see in those days everybody wanted cover songs, mm -hmm. so you have to do a big cross section. So we do all the songs that just came out, and, and it was the Grateful Dead, it was Santana, it was the Rolling Stones. And we would do these songs. No, no Beatles? We did some, okay. but not a lot. For some reason, the thing with the Beatles music, when it came out, a lot of guys that I knew that were musicians didn't want to try it because every- or, or Too intricate or, or? We all thought the Beatles were God. Uh -huh. we, we, we all thought that, oh my God, how are they doing what they are doing? Yeah. How are they? arranging what they're arranging. Mm -hmm. How are they getting those harmonies that they got? Right. So, and, and the other thing was, in those days and even today, when you perform, if you don't, especially in those days, if you didn't sound like the record, mm -hmm. if you didn't arrange it like the record, if you missed a word as you were singing it, people, the audience would go crazy. They wanted it exactly the way it was done originally. Mm -hmm. So putting your own arrangements together or improvising didn't happen for years. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, the, I don't think there were a lot of groups that I knew that did a lot of Beatles, but we did everything else. So that, that was in place for six, seven, eight years? Six, Which seven years, and it, it came in 1972, 73. Mm -hmm. um, I was going out with somebody who was going to the University of Las Vegas to, uh, she was gonna study uh, hotel motel management. Mm -hmm. And I had really nothing cooking. So I'd never been on a plane, I never flew anywhere, I never, I was, you know, and I was, I think 19 at the time. Um, and um, I kind of tagged along, which, got her family nuts mm -hmm. because they wanted her to just to go to school. What about your family? How did they feel about My that? family was like, uh, have a good time, good mm -hmm. luck. <laughs> because, yeah, things weren't, you know, the band business is good, you make mm -hmm. a certain amount of money, but you really can't live on it. So I think they were at a point of maybe find something else, find something new. Mm -hmm. And the way it happened was, the only reason I, w I went to Vegas was, um, this girl, Deborah, and her sister, Sandra, said, I saw this ad in Newsday, said about uh, a dealer's school in Las Vegas where you can become a dealer. And I was like, a dealer? I have no clue what this is. <laughs> yeah, a dealer. And it was dice dealing and 21, and it's casinos. So I, it, like all of a sudden, it was a new venture. Oh yeah, I'll go and I'll do it, whatever. So I, um, I went out with her out, to, out there. I did the schooling. 
The only problem is in Las Vegas is there are a zillion guys like me looking they for a job. A they want to be a dealer. But I did go to the school and I did graduate and eventually I did be, I did get hired in a bunch of places. And I worked in the, uh, the last place I worked was the, the Stardust Hotel. Mm-hmm. Now Stardust Hotel is very famous for one thing. It's from the movie Casino that I worked for the guys that were in that movie. I actually worked for them. It's the movie with Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. And I worked for those guys. So somebody gave me the book one day, and I started reading, and I'm going, that guy's my boss, was my boss. This guy's the shift manager. <laughs> this guy I knew well. You knew these guys. I knew these guys. Yeah. I worked with these guys, not knowing what was going on. I was a young kid. I didn't know what was happening. The things that were happening at the Stardust at that time were just beyond belief. What you see in the movie is one thing. When you saw it, I mean, you saw people come in and go into the counting room with suitcases Mm -hmm. and come out two hours later. They were filled. And, And the word was when we were there, they just walked out with $2 million in cash. There was two guys and two other guys with their hands in their breast pockets. Sure. <laughs> and, and we saw this every two weeks. We saw them come in. Two hours later, we saw them leave. Now, it's in the movie. You saw them walk in. You'd see whatever. Mm-hmm. So I lived with all this, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And that was the other thing. In the 60s, and uh, 70s, I'm sorry, the, uh, the casinos were all operated by families. This group from Chicago, Caesars was from New York. I think I was working with the guys from Detroit, whatever. So it was all this stuff that you see in movies. I was living it every day. At the same time, what I did is I had a golden opportunity with the music to learn the business. So I was able to see a production show. In those those years, they had a production show that went on eight, ten times a week. And I was able to see rehearsals. And I was able to in the Stardust Hotel, it was a show called Lido di Perry. And what I did is I was able, on my breaks, and, and when I was done with my shift, I'd stay. And I did that for six months, almost seven days a week. I learned how they put the show together. For it was an education. It's an education. Mm-hmm. So some of the things I still do today, I learned from back in the 70s, back in Las Vegas. And it was, it, was an, it was an amazing experience. And the other thing is, too, is when you lived in the town in the 70s in Las Vegas, you met everybody. Mm-hmm. Every person that you can possibly imagine that you've seen on TV. I sat next to Jack Klugman almost every day in a race book. When I was out there, you, 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 you know, it's betting's a big was a big thing then. And still, well, huge now, but we gambled on horses. And he sat next to me, <laughs> and every day he would bet $100 on every bet. Every bet he made was 100 bucks. Now, you know, people tell stories about him, you know, gambling. Well, I saw him making, physically making the bets. How was he? Was he successful? Or he, he, you know, he... he gamb- like anybody else. Yeah, gamb- <laughs> gambling, what I have learned in my years with gambling, I've been on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. 
you're never going to beat them. Mm-hmm. They're always going to win. And the way you can tell is they build bigger and bigger and bigger hotels all over the world. So if they were losing money, they wouldn't be getting bigger and bigger. They wouldn't and be bigger. Yeah. So there was, you know, there was a lot of things that when when you lived there in those days, not not compared to today. Today mm-hmm. is, I haven't been back. I've been invited mm-hmm. a half a dozen times, but I won't go back. But in those days, you could go from one end of the strip to the other in 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and it was the sands and the dunes, and it was the desert in. It was all these little places. Nothing was big and huge. It's a different world now. It's a different world. So how long did you stay in Las Vegas? I was there for three and a half years, mm-hmm. just about three and a half years. And then? Then one day, really bizarre, I got up. And I, in Vegas, when you work as, when you work as a dealer, you get a, you wear a shirt. Mm-hmm. has a logo of the hotel. And I got up one day and I said, I have to leave. And Where did that impulse come from? I don't know. It wasn't something I thought about. Mm-hmm. It was just after a certain period of time. I think what happened is the, f- the first year and a half or two years was like being in heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything. The glitz, the glamour, the entertainment. I, mean, I, was in, I was in the top of the world. And then I think towards the last year, year and a half, it got to be like you were trapped. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I, there's no way to go. When you're in Vegas, by the way, if you go a mile and a half either way, you're in the desert. desert. Yeah. You're in the desert. Yeah. So I think what happened, it just hit me one day. It goes, um, I have to leave. So I, I booked a flight, had my uh, friend drive me to the airport. Um, I um, called my, my, my job and I said, I'm, I'm going to New York for a while. And they, I said, how long can I have? And they said, you can, you can got to take 30 days. But was this a decision to leave permanently and you didn't share that with them or you just you weren't sure what was going to happen? I wasn't sure. But I, at that moment, I had to leave. Okay. I said, I just want to go back to New York for a while. Okay. And it's not that I hadn't been back to New York. I mean, it wasn't a call you received or a letter or anything like no, that? No, no. There was no emergencies. There was no... Mm-hmm. no, no uh, God forbid problems or whatever it was. It just hit me. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really bizarre because as I was leaving, getting ready to go and whatever, I was making my bets with the horses and, and I'm on the phone at the same time. So I called my brother and I called, um, at that time it was um, a, f- a friend of mine, Ann, who I eventually we got married. Uh, and we have you know one son who's now like 36 years old. Um, uh, and they were going to pick me up from the from the flight so i remember as i was flying out of vegas and i looked i always loved sitting by a window and looking out mm-hmm. and i remember and the guy announces we're flying over chicago or whatever there was a thing that came over me that said I, i'm never coming back and i never at went at that back. point that was it yeah i was, yeah i never went back i i never and before you said you'll never go back no no mm-hmm. no because my experiences there were, got to the point that I learned so much wheeling and dealing and wrangling and whatever, that I have told people and, and, and people don't understand it. I said, if you took me to Las Vegas today with probably zero money, zero ID, it wouldn't matter, I would have to have nothing. That within two or three days I'd be living somewhere, I'd have money in my pocket, and I'd be right in the middle of 
the, the crazy world mm -hmm. because I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Not that I know anybody there. I have two friends that I think are still there, but I haven't seen them in 40-something years. But I know the techniques of what to do and how to work the town. And that, and that, and that scared me. So I, That's it. Yeah. So I said, I, I'm just never going back. I, I had a, I worked for a security place one time. We were having a big conference, and the guy said, we want you to come and you know promote the, the mm -hmm. company or whatever. And I told him that story. I said, you don't understand. You're going for four days. If I go within the, the first two hours of me being there, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. I'm gone. You're never going to see me back on the plane or back in New York working because I'm going to dive right in. In, into the back into the world, so it scared me. So it, you're on the flight over Chicago, and you made the decision never to go back. Right. You were how old? I was 27, 26, 27. I think I went when I was 23. Yeah. And uh, you went back to Long Beach. Yeah, I went back, and it was not a great, <laughs> wasn't that a great? Oh, we're glad you're back, kind of thing. So what happened? Your parents were still in the same house. Uh, I believe, if I if I remember correctly, at that time, I think they were still were at the house for mm -hmm. a while. Then they moved. Eventually, they moved. Mm -hmm. They stayed in Long Beach, but then they went. Eventually, went to Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't go back to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. So I went to my my youngest brother Richie's house, mm -hmm. and I lived with Richie. And where was that? Uh, he, he had a place in Long Beach, and I think there was another time when he uh, was living in Brooklyn. So there was a couple of times. I, but I, I stayed with him, and then I uh, kind of just floated around, you know, and then trying to get back connected. You know, once you're out of the loop, it's really weird mm -hmm. in life. When you're out of the loop and you don't know people and you haven't seen them, um, they, they're not really open to like, oh, yeah. I know somebody can go to work and mm -hmm. get a job. And and there was times that did cross my mind that maybe I should just go back to Vegas. And I think for the first six months, I did have a return ticket. I Yeah, I, I, I booked a round trip originally. But I remember I remember cashing in that ticket, and I thought, I said, well, that, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. So, so eventually what happened is I, um, you know, I did some work. I lived in some places. Yeah. And uh, make a long story short, um, one night I had a uh, problem with my car. And I was pushing the car into a spot, and a guy pulled up behind me, and he said, uh, can I help you move the car? And another car was honking and whatever. His girlfriend decided to move the car. He took one side of the car, I took the other side of the car. Well, she turned around behind us and clipped my foot and crushed it, crushed my left foot. And uh, I can't explain what happened after that because for the next two years, I literally, literally couldn't do anything. I almost lost the foot. I went, they took me to the emergency, they took me to the hospital, and the guy said, you gotta stay overnight. We put the cast mm -hmm. on, we'll stay. 10 days later, it's four o'clock in the morning, I hear the guys in the hall going, 
I don't know. I think we got to take that foot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they changed my cast three and four or five times in 10 days, and the foot blew up and whatever. So to get right to it, what happened? Went through the thing. Cast came off, went to the orthopedics, took off the cast. I drove away. I couldn't. The foot blew up like you can't imagine. So for the next two years, I did physical therapy. I did all kinds of stuff. Now, of course, part of the deal is you gain weight because you're not going anywhere, you can't do anything mm -hmm. or whatever, and you can't work, you can't do nothing. So that was really a downslide for the, like, the longest time. Mm -hmm. and th that was roughly 1977. Now, this is before you met your wife. No, you know, it's funny. We knew each other before I went to Vegas. And I actually told her I was going to Vegas. Yeah, we were going out, and we were... Um, we're together, we're not together, we're together. We eventually we got married and then we got divorced so, in, a in a short period of time. But uh, after the situation with your foot, you reconnected with her? Yeah, basically because I was at the lowest end you could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lived in a basement apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, I had tremendous problems with anxiety and uh, a lot of stuff. And I, I went to the therapist, I did the whole thing you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But it was bad. So it was like I reached out, and she came to see me one day in Long Beach on the boardwalk, and then we got back together for a while. Mm -hmm. Then we were going to get married, and then we broke up, and, and uh, it was it was crazy for the longest time. But you eventually did. Uh, eventually, we got home. married, and my my we had one son, my son Dominic, who's thirty six now, and and, and what is Dominic? Does he live locally or? He lives in Levittown and he's a very successful manager of a big company in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, a, he's a CPA, but he's a manager of this. It's kind of more of like a business uh, management company mm -hmm. besides being a CPA. And he does some teaching and he, do, he does a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if I never came back and we never hooked up, and if I never made that phone call when I was at my lowest, yeah. it would have never had the tie of the, all of that. And he wouldn't be around, and my grandchildren. Life has a funny way of, of having things work out. Yeah, and, and, and my, uh, you know, my, my whole life would have been different, mm -hmm. you know. But I would not have had, uh, you know, I would not have my, my son and my grandchildren. So, Ray, you're, you're 70. 70 years old. 70 years old. You live in East Rockaway. Right. And um, you've had a, a wide range of experiences, I'm going to say. Yeah. So thinking back on your, on, on your experiences, is there a, a moment or something from those vast experiences that you could uh, draw upon that you could offer to, to anybody listening and, and offer as a lesson or something that could be a takeaway for those who are listening? From that experience, this is the insight that you gained. This helped you to, uh, you know, for the remainder of, you know, for the rest of your life and, you know, to this point, what is it that you took away from this experience that, that you can share? Is there something? I think the one thing I learned, and I think because more things have changed recently, you know, not, nothing crazy, but just that you, when you turn 70, <laughs> it's, it's a whole different, it's like turning that light switch and, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think what it is, is is you can never take for granted, ever, um, your abilities, your desires, your dreams, or whatever you want to do. 
that they're going to be there forever because that's not, that's not going to happen. So when the opportunity comes and you have a chance or you have a dream, that it, it can't be a part-time thing. That is, I'm not saying you can't live and do other things in your life, mm-hmm. but you, 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 you got to dedicate yourself, uh, immerse yourself in what you want. Because the chances, even if you do that, the chances of even getting that uh, may not happen. Mm-hmm. You may immerse your whole life. I know a lot of actors and singers and performers and stuff who still do it 25, 30, 40 years. They're not famous. They're not rich. But they still do it. It's still in their heart. So let me ask you, are you still singing? Yes, I still sing. Now I've been doing some writing. I've had some opportunities to do some small scripts for uh, um, this performance of Dating Catastrophes, which is about people <laughs> people dating. And uh, I, the first one they accepted, we did it, and it was great. And I got to see my my words on stage, which is wild. And, and in the city? No, it's out on here on Long Island. Uh-huh. And it's a guy named John Blend from uh, MCAP. Uh, theater productions he's been doing he's written like 40 something plays himself so he's got you know he's got we got another one coming up I haven't been accepted for this one yet so the writing I've done and I've written two scripts for independent movies that were done I did a play that was done so I kind of keep diversifying my talents singing yes I, I keep singing I do the 55 plus community I do uh, the uh, libraries I do any place pretty much where I can sing. So I just think in life in general, from what I've learned with everything, that if you want to do it, from the cooking to the music to the performing to all these things, mm-hmm. that there's always going to be adversity, there's always going to be opportunity. But when the opportunity comes, seize it, mm-hmm. you know, and have the desire and have the commitment. And, and also, you know, when, you, when the... When the uh, you know, when, when you stum, stumble or like get your foot run over by a car, uh, you keep going. You just keep going. That's an important lesson. Yes. And um, it's something to be imparted to others as well. And I'm glad that you did share that. I have to ask, you said your son is 36, lives in Levittown. Any grandkids? Yes. I have Maria, she's just turned seven, and uh, Anthony, he's gonna be six. And then my stepdaughter has baby Lucas, who's not baby anymore, he's like 20 months old. So there's three. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- that's one thing that I reflect on, you know, with all the past and how things happen and how life, you know, changes and th- th- that you can end up in this situation. And I'm as happy as, you know, I don't have to tell you, having grandkids is just phenomenal. I, you know? I see that with, with my father and, and grandkids he has and there's no greater joy no no greater joy and it's just very mystical when it happens Mm -hmm. to you like all of a sudden one day you're not a grandfather or a grandmother and the next day you're a grandfather (laughs) and it's and it's just overwhelming It's, it's really it's really something well Ray I have to tell you that I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your stories and and being able to take part in this conversation So thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Tom.
Can you believe how quickly that went? No. It went right. It, it went, went fast. It went fast. I'm sorry that I, I kept looking though, but I didn't want to. No. Be, I didn't want you to be in the middle of a story. No, I I was actually looking, uh, so I'm good. So I apologize. I didn't want us to appear rude. I think that went went well. I think it was fun.